The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Follow along as I begin reading in Romans chapter 4. Hope you've turned there by now. And we'll pick up Paul's argument. We've been studying this book for better part of a year now, and we'll continue on for a few more, and it will be a, a developing argument. One of the things that's critical in the Bible, the Bible is not, it's not an encyclopedia of verses. The Bible has books that contain very critical and intricate arguments and laid out, lay out a, a way of thinking that has to be tracked through. None is more important to follow than in the book of Romans. Like Paul is a lawyer, an attorney, presenting a case for the fact that God saves people on the basis of the work of his son, and that work is acquired by faith through grace alone. After talking about the blessing of David being forgiven last week, he picks up in verse 9 and says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised, that's the Jews he's been talking to since chapter 2, Or the uncircumcised also, that's the Gentiles. For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? Not while he, not while circumcised, but actually while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those not only who are of the circumcision, but also those who follow in the steps of faith, the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. If you were to read this passage as a preacher in those uh, few verses and say, uh, uh, I want to preach on something this week. I wonder if I should choose these. They probably wouldn't raise their hand in your mind. But in the flow of Paul's argument, this is really, really important territory. We've entitled the sermon today, Salvation is Not by Surgery. Kind of an odd title. But that title is necessary because that's exactly the place that the Jewish nation had found themselves in the writing of the New Testament. They believed that circumcision, the removal of the foreskin in a male child, would actually accomplish something redemptive in the person. When you study the history of religion, it's really the history of studying ritual. As numerous as our religions So many are rituals and ceremonies that go along with those religions. Religion naturally generates ritual and ceremony. Whether it's a Mormon getting baptized for a dead person, a Hindu enduring horrific body piercing to be suspended by those hooks in his back for a period of hours, or a Muslim in West India dropping babies from a 50-foot tower into a sheet even those burying chickens on the corners of their property to ward off demons. Can I say it? Or even baptizing babies who know not what they are doing nor what that means. 
religious ceremony is all around us. I've developed a love and a passion for Italy, as, as most of you know. I've been there several times and, and uh, have some missionaries who are working in Italy and uh, love Italy, lo- love the work that they're doing. Um, but what's sad what, is the trappings that the Catholic Church places on people that's just really sad. Uh, Kim and I were um, visiting Rome one time, and across from San Giovanni in, uh, in Rome is uh, a place called the Scala Santa. You may have seen this in the movie called Luther. Uh, it's a series of steps. These are steps that go up in a little hallway to a top in which there's a, a, a giant room that you can spend time in. Uh, it's reported that these were the steps on which Pontius Pilate stood in Jerusalem in condemning Jesus. In the 4th century, Constantine's mother, St. Helena, actually went down, took her Roman armies, and, and they, they excavated, they, they took these steps out of the Antonius Fortress in Jerusalem, dismantled them, brought them back to Rome, and she presented those to her son Constantine as a birthday present. These were the steps on which Jesus had no doubt been tried and condemned. These stairs are there across from San Giovanni, and they are comprised of 28 steps, And it's said that if you climb each of these steps and say a prayer on each one, that by the time you get to the top, you will have religious endowments on you. Specifically, on November 13th, 1893, Pope Leo XIII granted that the faithful who ascend the steps of the Scala Santa on their knees with a contrite heart, praying and meditating on our Lord's passion, they will gain an indulgence I'm quoting from the plaque on the wall, of 300 days for each step. This indulgence is applicable toward their own soul in this life or toward the souls of people that they know in purgatory. Across the street from the Scala Santa is San Giovanni, in which is a door of jubilee. This door is opened every 50 years, and if you walk through that um, door and uh, from Christmas Day until Easter. If you walk through that door, you are actually said to be forgiven of all your sins in your life up to that point. You have a clean slate. Kim and I were watching this play out. Not the we weren't there in the year of Jubilee. That was the last one was two thousand, uh, the year two thousand. Uh, but we were at the Scala Santa watching these these very precious people climb those stairs and just. The sadness of them thinking, me doing this is gaining traction with God. I was very interested in what was going on, reading plaques, taking pictures, and getting in trouble with the priest who was there for taking pictures. And um, I looked over at my wife, and she was sobbing. That the thought that I can go upstairs on my knees, and God will... Say, great job. It's not just the Catholic faith that has rituals. Protestantism has its own. Dare I bring up the idea of paedo-baptism, a rite where you baptize a baby, you sprinkle them, hopefully you don't immerse the baby, 
You sprinkle the baby, and that is supposed to do something to them or for them until they are of an age which they can believe. Can we talk about people who believe in the charismatic gifts in which they can bark like dogs and claim that that's the Holy Spirit, that they can roll around on the floor and say that the Spirit is moving them, that they can now have words of knowledge and claim healing that is an absolute charade and a farce and a fraud? I just find it interesting that the healers in our day tend to cure the stomach flu. Jesus healed withered hands. All to say that find any religion and you will find religion, religious ceremony. You'll find rituals. Now, to be sure, there are religious expressions that are ordained by God. There is a baptism that you're supposed to do as a believer that's ordained by God. It's very clearly said. We use the, 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 the communion, the Lord's table, whereby we take the symbols, the juice and the bread that represent Christ's body and death for sin. But the abuses of ritual far outnumber the authentic. It shouldn't surprise you then that to find when you follow Paul's argument in the book of Romans, that he addresses the abuse of spiritual ritual as well. In fact, the Bible does it over and over and over. You go back to Elijah preaching against the practices of Baalism, Ezekiel calling out the sins of idolatry, Isaiah exposing wrongful sacrifices. The men of God in Scripture are always saying what is important is the heart, not the ritual. Interestingly, the very first theological crisis of the church, the very first theological uh, cul-de-sac where they had to figure out what they believed, the very first argument of any theological note in the church was over a religious rite. And we meet that rite today. It was over circumcision. Remember Acts 15? You can just listen. Some men came down, Acts 15, 1, from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 uh, brought the apostles together where they said, no, 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 that is entirely the wrong way to look. Even Peter himself in Galatians 2 is rebuked by Paul for having taught that as a Gentile, to really enjoy the fullness of salvation, you have to be circumcised. Highlights how important the issue of circumcision was in the day of Jesus and in the writing of the New Testament. History informs us that most Jews in the New Testament times believed that circumcision was not only the sign of the covenant that God had given to Abraham and ordained by Moses, but it was also the way to set apart God's covenant people as the chosen people from everyone else. But it began to mean to them it was the way that God looked on you as favorable. It was the way God looked at someone as saved in fact, the Jewish apocryphal book of Jubilees says this, quote, The law is for all generations forever, and there is no circumcision of the time, and no passing over one day out of the eight days. For it's an eternal ordinance, ordained and written on the heavenly tables. 
And everyone that is born, the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day, belongs not to the children of the covenant, which the Lord made with Abraham, for he belongs, listen, to the children of destruction. In other words, the Jews believed that if you weren't circumcised, you would go to hell. Turn that over. If you were circumcised, you would go to heaven. Paul, though, addresses that with both the Jewish and the Gentile believers here in Romans 4. Salvation doesn't come by a surgical procedure. Jews had to put their faith in God in the Old Testament. No Jew was ever saved by circumcision. No Jew was ever saved by keeping the law. Those were outward demonstrations of an inward reality. In our study in Deuteronomy, we'll see here in chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 10 and chapter 12, that Moses says, you like circumcision? You think that that's a sign of the covenant? You're, you're impressed with what God has given you in that? Listen, it doesn't matter what happens on the outside. God wants you to actually circumcise your what? Hearts. It's a matter of faith. These Jews had come to the point where they believed that the right of circumcision made them in a righteous position before God. Now, the background here we find ourselves in is in chapter 1, Paul says every man is condemned because every man is sinful. And all you have to do is look at your own biography and you can find that out and figure that out. And then before he gets into chapter 2, where the Jews might say, yeah, that's right, those Gentiles are so bad, he says, who are you to judge? You also are equally culpable under the law that you actually possess. And then in all of chapter 2, he says, it's not having the law, it's doing the law that demonstrates a heart for salvation. In chapter 3, then, he makes us all know that there is none righteous, not even one. We're all guilty before God. And then at the end of chapter 3, he lays out this pounding principle really summarized in verse 28. We maintain that a man is made right before God. He's forgiven by God. He's justified by, uh, before God. How? By faith apart from the works of the law. That's his thesis statement. That's his premise. He knew that the Jews who were uh, uh, entertaining gospel thoughts, wondering if they were going to commit to, to Christ, were pondering, what about my old past and what about this? What about circumcision? What about being a special person before God as the Jews are and were? Then he pulls out, as a good lawyer do, the best case law possible off the shelf. And he says, you know, you know who your father is? You know who you really love? You know who the, the father of the Jewish race is who everyone says they're a son of? Abraham. Did you know that Abraham was actually justified by faith and not the law, not any works? And so he begins talking about that in the first few verses of chapter 4. And in chapter 6 through, excuse me, verses 6 through 8, as we studied last week, he takes an aside and says, David is actually an illustration of Abraham. And he too was one who was justified by faith and not the works of the law and was blessed for that. Well, that's where we pick it up here in verse 9, talking about the blessing of being forgiven for sin. As we look at this together and as we study this, I want us to uh, discover uh, two correctives for the error of justification by religious 
ceremony. Two errors for, uh, uh, of the justification of religious ceremony. In other words, how, how do you correct this idea that ceremony can save you, that ceremony can bring you closer to God? Paul provides two correctives, and they're correcting the error of justification by religious ceremony. The first is in verse 9. Righteousness is credited by faith alone. That will correct the idea that ceremony can somehow induce grace and favor from God on us. Verse 9. Is this blessing then, the blessing that he's talking about is the blessing back from uh, Psalm 32 that he quotes describing David's forgiveness. Is this blessing then on the Jews, on the circumcised, or the uncircumcised also? That's That would be such a far-fetched question for any Jew at the time of the writing of the New Testament to even entertain. You mean God would look on favor, God would want to save, God would want to have an eternal relationship in heaven with a Gentile? Remember what the publican says? Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. For we say faith was credited, imputed, that's our word again, imputed, it's used 11 times in this chapter, to Abraham as righteousness. The blessing referred to is verses 6 to 8, David's response to the overwhelming grace of being forgiven. David was used as an illustration for Abraham, uh, what, was, what Abraham was picturing, but it raises the question that the apostle has already been dealing with back in chapter 3. The question of whether or not forgiveness is limited to God's chosen people, the Jews. It's a good question. It's a good question for Bible students. If God made all these promises to the Jews in the Old Testament and God doesn't lie and God fulfills his promises and the Jews are God's chosen people, then what about the rest of the people? Can I just give you a really quick glimpse down the road? When we get to chapter 9, 10, and 11... He will say, God is not through with the Jews. God will reestablish the hope in the Jew for his promise to be fulfilled of a literal landmass, geography in Israel, on a literal temple mount from which the Messiah will reign, and they will look at the one whom they have pierced, and finally they will mourn. Now, though, God has said he's turning from. Remember when Jesus was coming down the, the Jordan Valley? And he, he, in a symbolic fashion, which he says is a symbol, he says, I have turned from the house of Israel. And he starts ministering in the Decapolis, which is the Gentile cities. And that shocked his disciples. What are you doing in these Gentile cities? And his message is salvation is for all. Then he comes into Jerusalem and he curses a fig tree. And he's as cursed as a nation, his nation, that had now turned their back on him. And they will remain under that curse until that great day in the tribulation when they do look on the one they have pierced and mourn. But even though there's a pause in God's economy of fulfilling that promise in the land mass of Israel, it's only a pause. He will do it one day for sure. Romans 9 will tell us all about that. Still, though, the Jews here are thinking, how, how come, 
well, hang on, Paul. You, you, the gospel is good news, the good news of God concerning Jesus. The Messiah has come. You say he was the crucified one who rose from the dead and that he offers salvation to everyone. But isn't Jesus Jewish? Yes. Wasn't he the Messiah of the Jews? Yes. Didn't he come to seek and save the lost house of Israel? Yes. But is salvation limited to the circumcised Jew only? No. Does God only offer forgiveness to the people of promise? Now, his answer is going to be that depends on what criteria you apply. Verse 10 is going to tell us that this forgiveness was based on faith, not surgery, not being Jewish. A little uh, quick insight when he says, we say, that's the same thing as he said back in chapter 4, verse 3, when he says, the scripture says, we say, the scripture says. He's saying the Bible, the Old Testament talks about Abraham. Paul knows that they need authentication. So he turns back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he offers it as interpretation and application of David's proclamation in Psalm 32. Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed in the Lord. Now just follow this. Pretend like you've never heard this before. Abraham believed, he had faith in the Lord. Because he believed, God credited him, reckoned him, declared him righteous. Why, David could say, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or credit his sin or his iniquity. Paul says, Let's remember, he's already referred to Genesis 15 back in chapter 3. He says, remember that Abraham was given, credited, not infused, imputed. He was given, declared righteous, given righteousness. Why? Because he believed God. That's why. It's very simple. It's a very simple point Paul is making by using Abraham. He's simply saying righteousness is credited by faith alone. That's review of what we've been looking at in chapter 3. But he goes on secondly to say that righteousness is credited apart from religious ceremony. And this is where it gets interesting. Righteousness is credited apart from religious ceremony. Specifically, he starts to explain that by saying it precedes religious expression. Righteousness actually precedes any ritual or any ceremony that you could express. How then was it credited? How was the righteousness credited? Another way of saying that is, what's the chronology of that? How how did this happen in Abraham's life? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? As we've noted from our study of Paul's argument in the whole book of Romans, he presents his data in the form of an attorney. He gives case law. He gives argumentation. He gives rebuttals. He anticipates questions. He asks questions he knows that the, the, uh, uh, the other side is going to ask, and he answers them for them and states them before they're even asked. One of the significant elements of a well-thought-out case is the development of an accurate timeline. Listen to any court proceeding, and you will hear much debate over a timeline. What happened first? What happened second? What happened third? You get the timeline out of sequence, and you lose your, your oomph as an argument. So Paul begins with a timeline. His point of the last chapter and a half has been 
that justification, being in the right with God, being forgiven by God, is accomplished by faith, not by doing something, not by works, not religious ceremonies. So, in chapter 4, he calls Abraham to the stand and begins to talk about Abraham's faith. Now, the prevalent thinking, as I said, in the Jewish mind at the time of the writing of the New Testament was that Abraham was marked and justified by God through his circumcision. This is even uh, supported uh, by Jewish authors who say Moses accented circumcision because Abraham was circumcised. Since Moses was the author of the law and the giver of the covenant of God, then we must be circumcised in the way of Moses by by the example of Abraham to be saved. Paul dismantles that notion with a quick lesson on chronology, namely Abraham's timeline. The point is this. Abraham's circumcision could have had no part in his justification. Why? Because Abraham's justification was 14 years before his circumcision. Genesis 17, verses 10 and uh, chapter 13, verse, uh, chapter, 10, chapter 17, verse 10, and verses 13 and 14 say that he was circumcised way after 14 years after he was justified, which happened in 15:6. At least 14 years have passed. Go back to the text in verse 10. How then was it imputed? That's the word, imputed. How was righteousness imputed to Abraham? Then he asks the question, when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Then he answers it, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Here's the math. The math is pretty simple. Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born in Genesis 16, 16. Abraham was 99 when he was circumcised, but God declared him righteous before Ishmael had even been conceived in Genesis 15, at least 14 years earlier. He's going to make the point in a minute, again, which is a stunning, stunning issue to a Jew. And you can use this when you're talking to, to your Jewish friends about this very issue. Abraham was justified when Abraham was a Gentile. He wasn't even Jewish, if we can even use that terminology yet. Verse 11, and Abraham received the sign or the symbol of circumcision, a seal, an outward expression of, now look at this, the righteousness of what? His works, his circumcision, his acts, his religious ritual, his religious ceremony. Where does his righteousness come? Come from? Faith. Then look at this. While, which he had while uncircumcised, in other words, while he was a Gentile, a pagan, a heathen, just like everyone else in the day, so that he might be the father, look at this, of all who do ceremony, of all who are circumcised, what does it say? Of all who believe. Get this, without being circumcised, that Righteousness might be imputed, laid at their account to them. Is that clear? It's just rock solid, crystal clear. Abraham was justified 
14 years later, he was circumcised. So how can the Jews say now, I want to be circumcised to be justified? That's how God looks at me with favor. Wasn't the case with Father Abraham. Oh, he goes on. He says, not only does it precede religious expression, it transcends, it's bigger than religious expression. Verse 12. And the father of circumcision, who was that? Abraham. He was the first one circumcised. The father of circumcision to those not only are of the circumcision, not just of the Jews, but also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Do you see what he keeps coming back to? Abraham has faith before he was a Jew. Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. Abraham had faith because he believed God. Justification, having righteousness credited to our account, is not on the basis of a ritual, a ceremony, a circumcision, a baptism, doing communion, walking through glass, whatever you want to say. That doesn't make it impressionable on the mind of God. Galatians 3, 7, Therefore, be sure... That it is, uh, it is those who are of the faith who are sons of Abraham. How clear is that? Who are the real sons of Abraham? Those who are born of the flesh, who are circumcised? No, no, no. Those who are of faith. So how are we sons of Abraham as Christians? It's a good question. Paul says that in Galatians. Paul says that here in Romans. How then is a Christian a son, an heir of Abraham? First of all, by seed. The seed of the Messiah would come through Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. So by that, spiritually, we are now sons, spiritually, of Abraham, though not physical sons of Abraham. I love it when a Jewish person comes to faith in Christ and they get to see that they are both physically and spiritually a son of Abraham. How else are we sons of Abraham? By mode. You say, what do you mean by mode? In the same way that Abraham was justified, we are justified by faith by believing. Now, just for a moment, hold your finger there. I, I do want you to see this back in Deuteronomy because this connection is going to come back to us over and over in our study. Um, let's just look at one verse for now. In chapter 10, mentioned it earlier. Maybe we'll look at two verses. Israel had been given the seal of circumcision. Israel had been given the law. This new generation was standing on the plains of Moab about to cross the Jordan. The older generation had died off because of the judgment of God uh, for them uh, uh, disobeying God, presuming on God. Moses wasn't able to go over, so they sit there on the brink of the Jordan about to go across. Moses gives them their, their marching orders, their theological moorings. And he does talk in the book of Deuteronomy, about the importance of circumcision. But not nearly as much as he talks about the importance of verse 16. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. That's a really interesting tension there in that verse. 
To circumcise your heart, to be a man or a woman of faith, is to go against a stiff neck, a stiff arm in our words, in our vernacular. To get your heart in the right place to receive Christ by faith means to crush your own pride. Go over to chapter 30. Toward the end of his um, uh, sermon... Lest we think that even circumcising our own heart is a work that we could accomplish. Look what he, what he tells the children of Israel on the banks of the Jordan. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God, he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. What will it look like if a person's heart is circumcised? What will it look like if a person's faith is genuine? What will it look like if someone is justified by faith because of grace? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Christianity is, can we call it a religion for a minute? Is a religion of the heart? Yes, there are external expressions. We obey God. We try to do works because we're being holy and sanctified by God. We, we, we do the Lord's table, uh, which is just symbolic. We have baptism, which is merely symbolic. All of those are symbolic of what a deeper reality has happened in our heart. Back over to Romans. Why is all this important? Why is this so important to us? I mean, at some level, you probably want to say, who cares? That was Paul, that was Jews, that was then. I haven't had that temptation uh, to think about ever being saved by circumcision. Who cares? Well, people are still tempted. All of us are still tempted to find religious security Religious standing before God through ritual and ceremony. It can be as formalized as something you do in church, and it can be as superstitious as a guy I've told you before. I used to, was on my high school wrestling team who wanted the power of God on him before he would wrestle. So each mat, before each match, he would take the Bible and rub it all over him. And he thought that helped. Salvation is not accomplished by a religious ceremony. Isn't that good news? Go back to the Salascantans, Italy. I just, I didn't, I didn't, couldn't speak Italian, but I just wanted to say, you don't have to do this. What about the millions of people who can't get to Italy and don't do that? There's a better way. There is a precious way. It's to believe what God has done for you already in his son. Romans 10, looking ahead just a few chapters. Tempted to read the whole chapter, but we'll be there pretty soon. Romans chapter 10, look at verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Isn't that exactly what Paul just said? No distinction between Jew and Greek. God does not look at you based on whether you're circumcised or not to... Uh, on how he'll view you before him. He looks at us on the basis of something else. 
No distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all, can we say any, all, everyone, who will call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, will be saved. It's about believing. So look at verse 17. So faith comes through what? Hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. Where's the word of Christ? It's in the Bible. Remember where we started today? We we have this precious value. I just... I just think of all of the countless generations of even Christians who, who, who never had a full copy of a Bible. It's only been in the last 200 years or so that it was affordable for a person to own a copy of the Bible. There were usually family Bibles or even one that was, uh, one, only one that was held by a church. It was chained to the pulpit. You have the complete written record of what God has to say. Here's the challenge. It's one thing to celebrate that. It's something else to act on it. So back to verse 12. What's the takeaway? That we are to follow, look at this, in the steps of what? Faith. Of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not what? Seen. I mean, come on, can we just be honest for a minute? Do you realize how ridiculous we are to the world? The things we sang a few minutes ago, that God raised a man from the dead, that a man who is God, can take away the sins on himself while being perfect and crushed by God the Father on behalf of those who would believe? If it sounds fantastical, it should. It should. But it's true. We follow in the steps of faith. Here's the good, good part about how this applies Faith is the way into salvation, and faith is the way you grow in salvation. And can I have a conversation that I, my sons and I have all the time? If your faith is weak, as all of our faiths will become, if your faith struggles, how can you increase your faith? Very simply, by putting your nose and your eyes in the book. Reading God's word builds, bolsters, secures faith. I know, I've had many discussions. I'm struggling with my faith. That's great. What are you doing about it? Well, you know, I just want to be in the right before the Lord so that I can start reading my Bible. So you're going to get things right with the Lord so you can go to the Lord who make things right. Is that how it works? Well, yeah, but, you know, the Lord knows if I'm insincere. He knows if I don't want to really want to be there. If you're asking, is this the read your Bible more sermon? It is. Um, 
I don't know how many of us who are regular Bible readers always feel this ecstatic joy when we sit down to have our quiet time. I have just the opposite. Every possible temptation to do anything, even good things, attacks me at the time of my quiet time. You think the enemy of your soul says, oh, let's give them a nice cup of coffee or tea if they're godly. And just give them a quiet place with, with nice, you know, uh, uh, Mozart playing in the background and perfect lighting and no interruptions and nothing to do the rest of the day and no sleepy eyes and an absolute attention span. And does that happen to you when you have your quiet time? Or does every force of hell come against you? If your faith is limping, read the Bible even and especially if you don't feel like it. I can think of no better news than God saying, I will save you by you believing what I've done. You don't have to go through any gyrations, you know, kneel down, stand up, go this, eat that, go there, hook yourself on a cross. No, just believe. I've already done it. In my son, I have crucified my son for you. What are you going to add to that that's going to impress me? Do you think that by being baptized or doing this or saying this or speaking in gibberish or you put it, any religious, do you think I'm going to elbow the angels and say, wow, and I thought crucifying the son of God was impressive. Look at that. We love the gospel. Because it's what God has done for us, for us, instead of us, because we could have never done it ourselves. I've told you over and over that, you know, reading, studying Romans 2 through 5, I keep, it's the same message every week. It's just the same exact sermon every week. And I keep wondering when I'm, I'm going to get weary of it. And every week I look at it from a different angle because Paul is showing the light on this beautiful uh, uh, doctrine from different angles. And it just keeps sparkling brighter. I just can't believe God would save us. It seems too simple and too good to be true. Doesn't it? Don't you think there's got to be more to this? The second you answer that there is more to this, you nullify the gospel of grace. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Yeah, but don't we obey? Aren't we holy? Yes. That's chapter 7. We'll get there too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that there's no religious ceremony that we have to do, no steps we have to climb, no baptism we have to accomplish that would ever earn your favor. Thank you that you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you have accomplished the work of salvation through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ whose life was spotless and who calls to all to believe. Keep us as children in curious, amazing wonder at the fact that you would save on the basis of faith. And faith 
alone. Father, make all of our doctrines be traced to a book and a chapter and a verse and never our own instinct or our own intuition because your word is truth. While your heads are still bowed, Aaron's going to lead us in some singing. And after so, after he does so, to my right will be some folks over there who'd love to talk to you if you have a burden, if you want us to pray with you, if we can talk to you about your soul. We would love to be able to see you leave today with things, not only in the right with God, but with people who care about you sharing the burdens that you have as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.